Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Matan A. Koch, who is a speaker, educator, and consultant, sharing ideas and strategies to promote the universal inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society, using strategies that benefit everyone. After a lifetime of leadership in the Jewish and legal communities, he was appointed by President Barack Obama to the National Council on Disability for a term which concluded in 2014. Matan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first thing I want to ask you has to do with word choice. Okay. I noticed that in your writing and in the videos in which I've seen you, you seem to favor the word disability and disabled. These are words that for a person not involved in the social, civic, political discussion so intimately around disability and access, it feels like a really loaded word. And frankly, the truth is, I want to make sure I use the right word. I want to make sure I use a word that engages people rather than puts them off. And so I want to ask you, A, about the word choice itself, but I also want to ask you about language in general when we talk about such loaded topics. And I'm so glad you phrased it that way because I sort of want to answer the question in two different ways. The first, let's just address the word head-on. There's actually a movement in the disability world that is, you know, hashtag just say the word or hashtag disability is not a bad word. The idea is that many of the sort of awkward ones like differently abled or special needs or handy capable, that was one that was popular in the late 80s, they sort of dance around the issue. Look, we have something. It's identifiable. Many don't believe it necessarily to be a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing and so the more dancing we do the harder it gets in fact that while for a long time everyone always trumpeted person first language that's the construction like person with disabilities person with x y or z there's now a group of people trying to really recapture don't call me that just call me disabled call me autistic call me deaf i don't you know just give me my identity and i'll run with it i don't need and but the bigger question what i wrote So this is a funny story. It's, gosh, going on 20 years ago now for the the 10th anniversary of the ADA. So this was 2000. Someone asked me to write a piece on the importance of person-first language. And instead, I wrote a piece that said, this is not particularly important. At the time, I had just come from interning as a in a Washington lobbyist outfit. I was a sophomore in college and this was my first exposure. And so of course in DC at that time everyone was using the correct language, right? Someone had given them a style book and they all knew exactly what to say. It didn't keep them from being condescending, dismissive, outright rude and, and in many ways dehumanizing. On the other hand At the time, I also spent a lot of time with recent immigrants to the United States. And sometimes, because it was the English word they'd used, they would use the virtually verboten word crippled. Mm -hmm. And yet they would be speaking with such respect for who I am and who I was that who am I to pick on the fact that they didn't use the right word. So 
my final take on word choice probably is a three or four part test. Number one, the most important is to show respect. Number two, one of the most important ways you show respect is find out what people want to be referred as, you know? If you meet someone who's like, call me autistic, don't keep referring to them as a person with autism. It's rude. They want to be called autistic. Give them, you know, the... But the only caveat is that sometimes it can show respect to have taken a little bit of time to learn the nomenclature that people use. So I would recommend using disabled and disability, not any of the cutesy terms we discussed at the beginning, because the fact that you chose one of those two will at least show that you spent some time considering what the correct words or the best accepted words, but it all comes down to intent, right? You can call me a person with a disability and be treating me as a non-entity. You can call me crippled and be treating me as the somewhat, you know, sometimes successful lawyer that I have been. And again, I'll take the latter over the former. So, uh, so you're clear on that, and that's helpful. Uh, I'm not sure everyone else is clear on that. I mean, I think we're all clear on the respect part. That part is without a doubt. But I do know that people sometimes talk themselves into a pretzel trying to get that language right. And the, the effort itself is, a, is an, an attempt to express respect. But it can often be so fumbling and so... Well, but instead of actually expressing respect, what I feel is what they're expressing, and I have great compassion for it, is discomfort. Yes. What they're actually expressing is they are not comfortable with the word disabled or disability, so they're trying to tuck their way around it. My sense is, especially to, to this audience, there are going to be, you know, we're, let's assume we're talking primarily to these students and alumni of your school... And, and synagogue goers as and well. And synagogue. But so you find yourself in situations that are going to make yourselves uncomfortable all the time. It's sort of part, of part and parcel with the job. This is where the say the word hashtag comes in. Get over that residual discomfort. Ask the question if you feel that you're in a one-on-one -on -one enough environment to do it. If you're not, just say the word. You probably can default to person-first language only for the reason that then you won't have somebody else probably without a disability judging you for the fact that you, you didn't use the word that they thought was correct. But honestly, and this was a discussion that I ended up a part of on Facebook a couple of weeks back, if someone ever comes to you, usually again a person without a disability, and says in a smarmy sort of way, we prefer special here or something like that, I think you're within your rights to say, well, with due respect, these aren't special needs. These are just people with needs that have a particular... And you can push back, not if someone is saying, that's what I want to be called, cause I re... but if, if someone's trying to correct you or school you on what to say, then it's okay to say, look, I'm showing appropriate respect and I'm using a word in your own hang-ups. I, I don't need to give you time for it. All right. Well, we'll take that to the bank. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate the, the forthrightness. That, that's... That's my brand, right? My, my father, Zichronel Lebracha, a grumpy, grizzled old rabbi, was all about forthright. Yeah, yeah he, uh, sound, yeah, he sounds like he was related to Arnold Jacob Wolf. <laughs> if not in, in fact, then at least in spirit. That's close enough. That's close uh -huh. enough. So I want to quote back. This is the best part when you get to throw words back in someone's face. It's okay. one of, this is when it gets good. You wrote something really beautiful, and I want to ask you to elaborate on it. Okay. 
clearly one of the themes in your writing and in the videos that you're on that I saw is inspiration. I was struck by the following quote where you write, I would also like to inspire you by forcing you to confront issues. To do this, I need you to see me as a person with a disability, but also as a beneficiary of privilege rather than as an object of pity. I think anyone would intuitively understand why anyone wouldn't want to be the object of pity. I want you to elaborate a bit on the beneficiary of privilege part. Okay. I do want to do a framing to say, if I remember which piece that comes from, it started out with me taking issue with the classic notion of inspiration and that somehow people are inspired by the mere existence of who I am and that in fact what I want to do is inspire you to particular actions. In fact, I was somewhat self-consciously aping the very famous place where Martin Luther King said, if you're going to call me a drum major, call me a drum major for X, Y, Z, not, you know... So just to make sure we frame for the listener, I'm not actually suggesting classically thinking of people as an inspiration. I'm saying, let me inspire yes. you to things. And, and now sort of the bigger question, because here's the thing. I am, it's true, a person with a disability. There's no avoiding that. I am also a white, straight, cisgendered male with two Ivy League degrees and an IQ of 150. It's really hard to look at the overall thrust of my life and not see that I was a pretty lucky guy. Most people don't get the opportunity to go to Yale and then go to Harvard to be recruited directly out of Harvard to one of the largest companies in the country and go there. Even within the Jewish world, within our own world, let's be honest. The reason that I was so relatively well included in the 1980s is that it wouldn't have occurred to anyone to say Norman Koch's son wasn't going to get to be at the URJ camps. The question was instead, how are we going to get Norman Koch's If I had just been a Jew with the same level of disability applying to one of the camps that I went to in the late 80s and the early 90s, I think, honestly, though, you know, people probably don't want to have the honesty of hindsight in this answer, I simply would have been turned away. There simply would have been, sorry, we're not ready to handle that yet. It, it wouldn't have happened. And so my privilege sort of comes from the fa- from background, from opportunity. And so it's impossible to look at my life and not say, oh, he's in a wheelchair, that's true. Oh, he needs people to take care of him, that's true. All of which create difficulty and you know, struggles that I have to deal with in daily Michigas, yes, but also, oh, look at the fact that academics always came easy. Look at the fact that, relatively speaking, for a person with a disability on the job market, you know, because the nature of my disabilities are the type that are least, um, the least barrier when it comes to employment, it was easy to get a job. Relatively speaking, in the Jewish world, since I was part of what we often lovingly refer to as the URJ Mafia, or then the UAHC Mafia, you know, I was pretty much guaranteed a place uh, at whatever part of the Jewish world I wanted to be into. These are all privileges. And so one can sort of look, and here's the way I often sum it up. 
if you were to describe my life in a nutshell. Graduate of Yale College, the Harvard Law School, practiced law, appointed by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate before his 30th birthday, and you were to leave out the fact that I was a person with a disability, your likely answer would be, wow, I wouldn't mind having his life. <laughs> and so I try to be cognizant of the fact that despite the things that I struggle with, my life is also one that I should be pretty grateful for. Sounds like a good way to go through life. I do my best. It also seems like you're making a call for people to see the dimensionality of your personhood and not to allow their vision of you to be defined by the most obvious or superficial thing that they encounter. That's the crux of everything I do, right? It's wonderful that I'm here at the CCAR this week and we're talking about ethical dimensions. But when I go into the world, I actually don't talk ethics. What I talk about is let's enable the participation of people with disabilities because of what we can do for you. When a shul makes itself accessible to me, I might end up on the board. I might end up on various committees. At various times in my life, I've been in a position to be a significant donor. People bring it is to the benefit of the organization to have allowed me to come inside. And basically what I say is we practice disability inclusion not for the benefit of those people who are being included in scare quotes, but for the benefit of our communities and what will be brought to our communities by having that person be a member. The deaf potential congregant that shows up at your door if you're ready to greet them and welcome them in, may one day be the most capable president your congregation and ever had, and you've got talent walking through the door. The kid who at six can't sit still in services because of an attention deficit or something like that may grow into the most stunning youth leader your youth group ever experienced, or may one day enter the college and be the hottest rabbi of his or her generation. And we don't know those things, but frankly, I want people including because of fear of missing out. I want them wondering what incredible people with incredible gifts to give am I missing out on if they're not included in my world. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. That leads us to another direction in some of your writings, which I also found really interesting, which is this notion of supply and demand. You make an argument that there are demands, and your argument was made in the context of employment, particularly. A mm-hmm. uh, very you know, uh, important uh, point that employment is a necessary part of this inclusion discussion, such as it is. And you say, you know what? There are demands that maybe not only can be filled, but can be 
particularly well-filled by populations within the disabled community or subsets or depending on the task you can mix and match and get a really great complement between the supply of skill and the demand for a certain type of work and you're asking us you're asking all of us society to just take a minute to think about where those complementarities might be Talk about that a little bit. What, what, what do you think that looks like in a scenario or perhaps even in a real life scenario that you know of? So I used to describe that specifically with regard to people with disabilities. And at one point when I was at my law firm and I was explaining this concept of disabilities to a partner there that did hiring and professional development, he said, well, wait, isn't that true of everyone? So to me, what that really looks like is that we redefine our hiring practices and by extension, our acquisition of other types of talent practices in the following two ways. Number one, universally, let's understand what we're looking for. And sometimes that's clear. If I'm hiring a programmer, I might be looking for someone with facile skill in whatever the latest programming language is. Sometimes it's, gee, we just really want more members that live in this geographic area with children between the ages of blah and blah. And so once you've honed in on that, as you look at the universe of people, see them for what they have to offer in that regard first. Okay, so you want a computer programmer. You're looking at a list of applications. You see a person who has listed out that they received seven proficiency awards in the programming language that they that you care about they have moved to your area and the evidence they want to stay there maybe they have kids in local schools in short they're everything that you would be looking for in your ideal employee focus on that first and once you've latched in that you want them then you might notice oh they're a person with a disability here are the following obstacles that they will face to delivering their programming talent to us. How can we overcome? But it starts, frankly, in a very counterintuitive way by looking at people specifically in terms of what they can offer you. And then you focus on what you have to do to allow them to offer that to you. I realize that seems counterintuitive, but let's be honest. If you're not looking at people in terms of what they can offer you, you're probably looking at people in terms of the effort that it takes to get them to you, which is a far less salutatory way to look at someone than to simply and carefully evaluate, wow, what can this person do for me? Why are they what I'm looking for? And the funny thing about it, if we take it out of the employment context and move it firmly into our context here in the Jewish world, is think about it differently than acquisitional. Think about it instead. If for every person you started by focusing on what was best about them. And honestly, what was best about them in your brain isn't what they think is best about them or what their mom thinks is best about them. It's what they best do for you, what you like most about them. What is it about them that makes them most desirable to you? Maybe it's their laugh, maybe it's their smile, maybe it's the fact that they fit your demographic, maybe it's the fact they come from a deep-pocketed family, whatever it is, there's something about them that makes them most attractive. How is it a bad thing to focus first on that? You're first focusing on what it is about someone you think is their very best quality in your 
particular view of the world, and then you're focused on getting them to deliver that, how is that bad? If you look at someone and you sort of say, oh, this person is going to be a pain because I can already tell they're opinionated. This person is going to be a pain because, you know, I know that when their family comes in, there's going to be endless family drama. This person's going to be a pain because we have to get interpreters when they show up. You've already started to see the person as a problem. If you, instead, you say, this is a member that I want. This is a person that I want. This is an addition to my life that I want. You're excited about them because of that. Then it's about, okay, what's getting in the way? How do I get them there? Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not sure I'm it articulating does. it. No, it's, be, it's beautifully articulated. In fact, I, I couldn't help but looking at, I, I know your name, but I was looking at your name tag as you're speaking, Matan, meaning gift, and you're asking us all to look at each other as potential gifts first. Absolutely. I mean, the name I can't take credit for, my folks got that. But no, absolutely. What I say when I teach children, my very youngest programming, I say to the kids, I want you to write down something you're very good at and something that you struggle with. Wouldn't you rather be known as Daisy who's very good at X as opposed to Daisy who really struggles with Y? Of course you would. My father, Zichron Alibracha, was a talented giver of sermons. Right? He was known fairly, he was absolutely lousy at baseball. In my whole life, I never heard anyone refer to Norman, who's not very good at baseball. It'd be Norman, who was pretty good at sermons. And don't we want people focused on what people are good at? Kids certainly know they'd prefer for people to focus on what they're good at. Why don't we do that for the rest of everybody? Yeah. Something very almost stirring in what you're proposing is a kind of radical selfishness. There's something reliable about depending on someone else's self-interest. If you can depend on someone else's self-interest, then you can depend on them. And we all pursue our own self-interest. So if we rearrange our self-interest in such a way that we naturally want to eke out the best of everyone around us, I get where you're going with this, that we'd be in a better place. It started when I was at Yale undergrad. I was in the religious studies department. And I used to spend a lot of time debating with a friend of mine who was also in the religious studies department, who was also one of my care people. He had a student job helping with my care. And he thought that I was the most Pollyanna guy in the world, because at the time, I would always talk about, no, I do all this because it's right, I'm a rabbi's kid, yada, yada, yada. And he said, no, you do it because it's what makes you feel good. It makes you feel good because you think it's right, but ultimately you're after the validation that comes from XYZ. At the time, I argued vociferously against him. Then I got to Harvard Law School and was introduced to the notion of utility and the fact that everyone, if they're a rational actor, acts to maximize their utility. And I realized it's true. Human nature, unless you're deliberately trying to deny your nature, is to do that which is best for yourself. So you have two choices if you want to be a good person, right? Your two choices are you can radically try to deny your nature, 
and hope for the best, or you can be insightful enough to realize why doing things that happen to be good for other people is actually also good for you. My late father had a take on the blessings and curses at the end of Devarim. His take on the blessings and curses at the end of Devarim was not that they would be divinely visited upon us for the choices that we make, but they'd be the natural consequences of either a society that was living according to the mitzvot or a society that was not living in the way that the mitzvot would ask us to live. And again, it's sort of a radical self-interest, right? It's keep the mitzvot because then you'll actually live in the world you want to live in. Keep the mitzvot because then if your neighbors are doing it too, they're the kind of neighbors you want. And so I have no problem with the notion of radical self-interest as long as people realize that ultimately what's in their self-interest is, at least in part, looking out for each other, if only because you want someone else to be there for you when you stumble, right? Radical self-interest requires an incredible degree of self-examination and self-perception. And trust that the people around you will also engage in comparable self-examination. That's the leap. That's why I think people express radical self-interest in destructive ways. It's because they don't trust that the other people around them will come to the same conclusions of what we're calling you know, ethical or good behavior. I don't do what I do because I think people need an introduction to self-interest. I yeah. do what I do because it's a platform for me to explain why doing what I think people ought to do is in their self-interest. self-interest. I get it. it. That's exactly what I'm... And there's a rabbinic notion as well of the fact that the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, has a purpose. That selfishness is intended to be a motivator for acting well, that you can channel the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, for good actions if properly understood in the context that you are trying to... Right, as I recall, that particular Gemara says, if not for the Yitzhara, no one would ever build a house, get a job, yada, yada. Like, there's a, there's a list of things yeah. that no one would ever do, but for the Yitzhara. Real inclusion doesn't happen without self-interest, because engage with me in a thought experiment for a moment. And the employment context is the easiest one to do this. In a boom time, you might decide, in a fit of moralism to hire a bunch of people with disabilities. And you didn't really think about it as in your self-interest, so you didn't take the time to design it in a way that you were getting any benefit from this choice beyond whatever slight good feeling you got by giving jobs to, and you know, an economic downturn hits. And all of a sudden you've got this bunch of people that aren't actually providing any valuable service for your business, except for the fact that it makes you feel good that you hired them. They're gonna be out the next day. There's gonna be a moment when you say, I've got to make a cut. Altruism doesn't stick in that regard. If, on the other hand, you made those same hiring decisions because it was talent you wanted that you thought could do something for you, then they are as protected as anyone else at the very least because they're providing a service and possibly more protected because they meet a need more fully and more squarely than someone else would. And so they're actually last on your list to get rid of. So let's stick with the employment thing, because there's, there's another theme I want to follow here. Sure. You, you argue that a necessary precondition for the disabled to have access to the mainstream is that they have to engage with lots of people, and lots of people have to engage with lots of disabled people. Lots of, what's the opposite of disabled? 
by the way. Uh, sometimes able-bodied is, I don't love it, but it seems to be the word people use. All right, so let me rephrase um, the question. You've argued that a necessary precondition for making sure that disabled people get access to the mainstream is for the mainstream to have meaningful interactions with lots of disabled people as much as possible. But you seem to be saying that you need to break into what I'm calling the mainstream, again, for lack of a better term, with a critical mass of disabled people to to break that, to break into the mainstream. So let me cut you off just for a second, because the one important qualifier in that piece, and I'm happy to discuss it further, but is that that piece says at the beginning that that's a hypothesis, that in fact I always thought that it wasn't a numbers game, and now I'm beginning to entertain the hypothetical possibility that it is. So I still am happy to engage the hypothesis, but to be clear, I don't have the conviction that this is the right answer. Fair enough. This was a piece advancing a hypothesis. More more than fair. So So, let's engage with the hypothesis. It's an interesting hypothesis because it has been tested with other populations, specifically populations of color. In fact, I think you even use the word, again, hypothetically, quota in that in that piece. So this is charged thinking in early 21st century America with echoes of, of affirmative action and all kinds of interesting things. I mean, it may be charged, but it's also really interesting and complicated. So I want to draw you out on some of the complications, the possibilities, and maybe some of the liabilities. So let's talk about why, first of all, I think this hypothesis has merit. What it comes down to is this. There is a whole group of people, just because I practiced law for the better part of 10 years, that now have a concept, a concept in their mind that their high-powered lawyer might be someone in a wheelchair. And so at least one of those people, if they find themselves interviewing someone for a job in a wheelchair, might now not say, geez, this can't possibly be the person I'm going to hire. This doesn't fit my picture. What a lawyer or an accountant looks like because they've now dealt with a person with a disability as their lawyer. The theory, the critical mass theory, is that you know the more people there are in such roles, the more it becomes normative to see people uh, with disabilities applying for the roles, and therefore you haven't de facto counted them out. Also, it will help to have built strategies to include, because you had to for the numbers, that you can then bring in. But to back up the context of the piece, which answers your other questions, I wrote the piece right after the Obama administration had promulgated a new rule with target aspirational 7% quota for federal contractors, an actual affirmative action target to, to which there was supposed to be a plan. And I wrote the piece at the time that I did in response to some thoughts that I'd had, oh, you know, five years, seven years prior when I was in law school. When I was in law school, I was learning about American disability law, and I was also learning about European disability law. Turns out Europe has had quotas since they started making disability laws. In Germany and France, at least at the time when I was in law school, there were quotas of percentages of people with disabilities that each business should hire. Like this was the way they had done it. And unsurprisingly, it had worked very, very poorly because the focus was on meeting the quota. So they created empty positions, put people in them so that their numbers went. And so I was very negative to quotas. I'm still ambivalent about quotas because 
I think that incentive exists wherever you are. But what I like about a quota is let's assume for a minute that every federal contractor was in fact subject to the 7% wrong. And let's assume that at least a critical mass of contractors read the writings of someone like me and realize, hey, if we're going to have to do this, let's do it in a thoughtful way. Let's actually get some useful talent out of the deal. Then you really do have the benefits of critical mass because not only do you have you know, your picture of an employee starts to change, but they're going to be high performers, they're going to be successful. Not only will you have the notion that a person with a disability can work with you, you'll start to have a notion that a person with a disability can work with you and work well. It is fascinating to me when I end up in communities that for whatever reason have high percentages of people with disabilities, the different way they look at me, even than my friends from other communities. They look at me and there's just a presumption and an assumption that I'm competent, someone who might be able to babysit their kids or, you know, help them out when they need an errand run because people with disabilities have become enough of a part of their life that I'm just another guy that looks like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Whereas even among my friends in a world where it's less prevalent, somewhere in the back of the mind is the thought, can we ask Matan for that? Is he really someone we could ask to pick up our dry cleaning? Is he really someone you know, we might leave our kids with for an hour if we need to leave kids? Because somewhere in their mind, the notion that I'm okay for that, that I'm competent for that, hasn't exactly percolated through. It's just not the picture they have, even if they know I'm a decent lawyer, teacher, speaker, Talmud person. So what I want to do is move the needle, and quotas done right can do that. Quotas done wrong will be incredibly damaging, because what we'll have is 7% of dead weight sitting there having filled the quota, and then people are going to say, look, what it means to hire with people with disabilities, they don't do anything. So it is a very dangerous tool. But the point of my hypothetical was, since nothing else has worked, maybe we need to try dangerous tools, <laughs> right? If we had a better solution, we would try it. But to paraphrase the quote that is at least attributed to Winston Churchill, democracy is the absolute worst form of government imaginable, except for all the other ones. And so when I look at quotas, I don't like them. I'm just at this moment of saying, What's left? The ADA turned 25 in 2006, and since its enactment, uh, employment numbers of people with disabilities have gone backward. Mm. We have literally made not only not progress, we've actually regressed. So this uh, program is called The Bully Pulpit. Um, to give you the opportunity to take a parting shot, what, what's, the, uh, what's a, a single one-off message that you want to leave the audience with? Lately, as I've been teaching groups of rabbis and congregational leaders, and I've been talking to them about the leadership that is required to really change the way people think about inclusion, making it universal, making it, I get back the response, but it's difficult, but congregation, congregants push back, people are unhappy with it, it puts us in tough situations. So the parting shot that I want to take from a bully pulpit is to really call on every Jewish leader that hears this to take the difficult stand, to realize that universal inclusion is radical inclusion. It's a radical departure from where we are. It's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to shake up 
established ways of doing things. And so my parting shot is to say, go look at my materials, look at the strategies that I recommend. And even if they make you uncomfortable, even if they seem hard, if they seem right, take on the spiritual leadership, the strength and the daring to do it. Okay, duly charged. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful talk. I really enjoyed enjoyed having you. Thank you. It was great to have you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.